Hello, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. This one speaking is Drew, and the one who will be speaking now is Scott. That's me. When we were recently preparing our David Mamet episode, we were struck by the seeming incongruity of his screenwriting credit, under the name of Richard Vice, which he used in order to protect his brand for 1998's Ronan. This led us down the path of an episode about films where the script of an unlikely film was punched up by well-regarded screenwriters. As it turns out, that was quite a short path that led mostly to, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, um, punched up by the way too gifted for that crap Alexander Payne before being punched down, (laughs) way, way down, by Adam Sandler. Uh, we're not talking about that, though, primarily because doing so would mean watching I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry again, and once in a lifetime is probably two times too many. <laughs> Instead, having discovered that that was rather a, no, evil path, um, <laughs> we're just going to talk about two 1990s films, the aforementioned Ronan and Michael Bay's The Rock, that somehow attracted work from two of Hollywood's most lauded writers of dialogue and then discuss whether or not we can detect her hand, and come to some sort of conclusion, I suppose, as to whether it was worthwhile. To the quality of the finished product, and us the audience, that is. (laughs) No doubt it was most worthwhile to the writer's bank balances. Uh, And before Scott begins to talk about John Frankenheimer's Ronin, I'll apologise in advance if I talk an unseemly amount about East German figure skaters, but, well, a young boy's infatuation dies hard. (laughs) So, Scott, Ronan. Yes, uh, I don't want to take up much time with the plot recap of Ronan, so get through it as quickly as possible. In fact, I'll be Ronan 60 seconds. Pause for applause. Okay. Um, Plus too long. <laughs> um, in France, a small team is being assembled by Natasha McElhone's Deirdre to mount a raid and retrieve a case that's stuffed to the brim with McGuffinium, which is currently on its way into the, the country under heavy guard. Said team. Is who, that another crypto coin? I think it is, yes. <laughs> uh, said team, who at least initially uh, are cultivating a bit of mystery about their origins and skill sets, are Robert De Niro's Sam, Jean Renaud's Vincent, uh, Sean Bean's Spence, Stellan Skarsgård's Gregor, and Skip Suddeth's Larry. Soon we'll get a bit more detail. Larry's a wheelman, Gregor's the tech expert, Vincent the local fixer, and Spence is the obvious fraud. And while our point of view character Sam's background remains a touch more vague, it's clear that he's the most competent to take charge of the planning and execution of ice, navigating the tensions and frictions of the thrown-together team. While this is initially successful, it sets off a cascade of betrayals and double crosses that sees Sam and crew scrambling to recover from again and again, um, and at risk of spoiling a checks notes, old as balls films, <laughs> essentially we can say that everyone betrays everyone else, just as those historical Ronin notably did not. An old axiom holds that everyone has at least one story in them, and in screenwriter J.D. Zeke's case, it seems that one is all he had that's worth considering, at any rate, uh, unless 2008's Pistol Whipped bucks the usual quality trend of Steven Seagal films. Uh, (laughs) But in terms of Ronan, at least, I'm not sure my primary enjoyment comes from the plot exactly. It's not bad, for sure, and I should note that this is another inductee in the Scott Morris Hall of, of course I've seen this film before, oh, hang on, wait, no, I haven't. Um, Mm. But even on a first viewing... uh, 
this amount of double crossing is credulity stretching. It does, however, propel the film onwards at a heck of a clip and makes for a fun watch, uh, particularly with some better than usual character work for this sort of thing. If we are to hold David Mamey responsible for all of the dialogue, we can at least divine that he has never been to Britain, or England specifically, as while there's plenty of bones to pick with the delivery of the Blarney, it's mainly poor old Sean Bean that's lumbered with some of the least believable sentences in the film. Um, there's spilt some jam, Scott, there's spilt some jam <laughs> back there. Bit of raspberry, eh? Um... <laughs> Yes, uh, that's tempered a little by his character being supposed to be a bit of a fraud, but in any sense, this is laying it on a bit thick, and the overall quality of this film increases immensely when he stops being in it. Just for once, it's not primarily his fault. The rest of the cast fare better, the interplay between De Niro and uh, Renault show uh, being a particular highlight, uh, although it could perhaps have shown a touch more restraint in painting De Niro with as much of the badass brush as was available at the time. Um, <laughs> still, it's an effective palette with some pleasing gunplay and some incredible chase scenes. I mean, it's no Fast and Furious 8, but, you know, for the time, it's good. It could really use someone driving a submarine into a skyscraper, though. <laughs> um, adding to the atmosphere, alongside the punchy pacing and editing, is director John Frankenheimer and cinematographer Robert Fryce's efforts to make a film shot in 97 look like it was shot in 79, with a muted palette and shots that show off the beauty of Paris, mostly without the obvious tourist shots that might be easier to go for. It's a much appreciated bit of visual flair, or, well, perhaps the exact opposite of flair, um, which gives it a bit of differentiation from contemporary action films, albeit one that audiences did not seem to appreciate going by the lacklustre box office returns. I recommend that you do not make the same mistakes as those late 90s dummies like uh, me, and catch up with this if you have not. It's not going to radically change your world, but it will prove an enjoyable way to spend a couple of hours, and isn't that enough? I knew that I hadn't seen Ronan. I, I, I had no doubt about that, Scott. Um, mm-hmm. I did obviously own it for more than two decades <laughs> for yeah there's probably a good reason for that um <laughs> but uh i'm i'm kind of cursing myself now because if if i had watched it before then this would be me watching it again and be able to enjoy it again as opposed yeah. to having only been able to enjoy it once because i really enjoyed it mm-hmm. really thoroughly enjoyed it uh, yes the the plot is not the strongest the double crosses are well <laughs> silly yes a touch too frequent. It's like, oh, I'll bet you'll guess this double cross, but you won't guess the next eight. <laughs> okay, yes, cool. Uh, now, if I was being unkind, I could say that possibly I could um, mm. detect David Mamet's hand in there because, well, as previously discussed, <laughs> I think the man cannot write twists for Toffee despite loving them so. Um, <laughs> but no, I think this is a case of, and it's, again, in our David Mamet episode, it turned out to be the case for me is that I really enjoy David Mamet's dialogue for the most part. I do not care for David Mamet's direction. Yeah. In this case, he's not directing, so mm. that's great. And and I think his his dialogue is actually quite clear in quite a few scenes, mm-hmm. particularly some of the early establishing scenes between the crew. Um, yeah. When they're it's like the really snappy back and forth and. That Robert De Niro's just got some clever wee lines in there, and yeah, quite clearly, quickly scoping out the rest of the team is what they are. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I have some issues with the dialogue, kind of more, I guess, kind of mechanical. So something like the ones you have to some of the stuff that some of the characters are saying, it's that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then there's a line where Natasha McElhone says that you know after we do this thing with the ambush or whatever it turns out to be, um, we'll meet back at the RV point. And then Jean Renault's Vanson doesn't understand what it means and yeah. 
And we're up to New Towns Ryan and it says that's something that's about the place where we're going to meet us. Oh, it's a military term. It's like, yeah, but it's also short French. for rendezvous, you know, the French word. <laughs> yes. You're saying to the France, the Frenchman in Frenchland. <laughs> that that's kind of stupid, quite frankly. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's it's very entertaining. I was quite worried when I saw the first English person turn up to speaking in a, an Irish accent. Um and then seen being Sean Bjorn, I can't quite decide what should be the correct one. I'm going for scene B, I prefer that. Is in this film, just, oh, oh no, please don't be Patriot Games, please don't be Patriot Games, please don't be Patriot Games. It's like, oh no, don't just his actual accent, that's nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's my problem with Sean Bean in this film. I generally think quite like, but I just don't think he's all that great sometimes, yeah. that's the problem. Uh, but yeah, the, the dialogue he's given is terrible. Um, it's, and it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's so much worse than everyone else's. I yeah, don't. I don't yeah. quite understand how he got the wrong end of that stick. Or the, <laughs> I do wonder if that's not a mammoth because it gets so it feels so different. Yeah, from the rest. Um, and it's like when they they go to that that meet down by the Seine that goes um, in the parlance of our times tits up, hmm. and he's all excited and stuff like. This is the most ridiculously annoying character. Yeah, I don't think I can stand him. It's like, oh, he's gone soon. Phew, uh, <laughs> and. I kind of half expected him to come back at some point later in the film, and I'm glad he didn't, because it would have hmm. been stupid. But I was <laughs> expecting that for quite a long time. But yeah, so the the plot itself is nonsense. However, there was a lot of this that I really enjoyed. The performances are great. Jean Reno and um, Robert De Niro in particular. Yeah. This was back, we you know, like Robert De Niro tried. <laughs> yeah. You know? If I, but this is when Robert De Niro tried to the point where it's like, and if I felt like he needed to try, he was always just really good. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what happened to him after that, up until Stardust, where he's having a bit of fun. But like, you know, he got to the end of the 90s, thought, nope, that's me done. It was only when Scorsese came calling again for the Irishman that he decided to, oh, yeah, he's to be good at this. I'll give that yeah. a go. <laughs> and the, the other two things are the settings. I mean, I love Paris and I love the south of France. And mm-hmm. there's huge parts of this set in the south of France. So like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. And you add to that um, some really good car chases. Uh, it's well lauded for, and I like that too. It's like it's more competent driving. It's not your, not to denigrate the Blues Brothers because that's obviously not being serious, but it's not your Blues Brothers style car yeah. chases. It's not played uh, for comedy, and it's not played for like it's not just a random assortment of CG things crashing into other CG things as well. Yeah. It felt like this could actually happen, and well, clearly it did because that's how they filmed this kind of things. And yes. it's uh, it's just incredibly impressive of technical stunt driving. Uh, yeah, yeah. When you see them like roaring down streets full of parked cars, like there's not a lot of space, and obviously it's a closed street, and those are cars set there, and they know the yeah. measurements and stuff. But it wouldn't take <laughs> much to smack into those. Yeah. Um, so I piece that. It's not actually my favourite car chase in Paris. I think that's probably still the born identity, right? Because uh, that really. Mm-hmm. There are similarities and similar um, quality levels. I think partly because they were using that very small mini in the Born Identity, it was a bit more inventive. Yeah. Um, but there's not a lot in it. Um, and the only issue I had with the, the stunt driving is that, and maybe just because it's a product of the 1990s and it may have actually been some sort of legal statute, but all of the cars are made of fire. Why are the cars <laughs> made of fire? <laughs> You've bumped into a curb. Oh, boom! They've let all the fire out. Um, I'm sure by the 1990s there were definitely laws about not letting the fire out of cars quite so easily. Yeah. It's 
it, it zips along at a pretty good rate. Yeah, another uh, thing that did worry me a bit when I saw the running time of it was it's it's just a touch longer than I would normally want my um, thrillers or, or this kind of actiony type thriller to be. Yeah, yeah. But it really doesn't feel like it's um, two hours no, and I didn't, I didn't a couple of minutes or whatever it is. But yeah, it, it really barrels through it and does not let up. Uh, it, it's really good for that pacing regard. There is one section which perhaps is overlong. It's important to the point in a part. But this is part of what I was referencing in my introduction. It's like there, there's the one ice skating scene. And given the ice skating scene <laughs> involves Cathy being a vet who I've basically been in love with since I was a wee boy watching her in the Olympics. <laughs> I was entirely fine with that. She's a stunning yeah. woman um, and she's incredibly skilled. Like, yeah. You know, five minutes watching Cathy being a vet skating on ice. I'm fine with that. We can get back to the car chases and the shooting later. That's fine. <laughs> I guess that. It wouldn't be unfair to argue that perhaps that's slightly overlong, but maybe by a minute or two at most. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't really think that'd be a big problem. If I have any other real regrets about it, it's that it's got Michael Lonsdale in it, and Michael Lonsdale's not in the entire film. Yes. Michael Lonsdale's brilliant. I love <laughs> Michael Lonsdale. Yeah. Um, I, just, I would have liked to have seen more of him because he's great. I mean, I could, uh, and I, I wonder if I'd detect um, Mamet's hand in that too, but that whole. Um, Spielis given Robert De Niro about the Ronin. Hmm. I could have listened to another fifteen minutes of that. Yes, <laughs> delivered by him. Yeah, it's it's a really really solid film. I was, I mean, a little concerned about it because some nineties films, action films in particular, don't stand up because yeah. you know they're full of cars made of fire, <laughs> which is <laughs> not a thing I tolerate well nowadays. Um, but no, the, the really quality stunt driving, the great acting, um, again, particularly between Renault and uh, De Niro really good dialogue and it papers over most of the other cracks and there aren't that many cracks yeah superficial and, cracks at best yes yeah. oh, they don't show the MacGuffin really mm. glad about that I think yeah uh, possibly even more nowadays they'd feel determined to tell you yeah and I don't want to know mm. um, and again this was something to worry about the start of the film because I didn't if I ever knew what this film's actually about about you know other than the vague idea of Ronan uh, I have long since forgotten it. I just knew like who was in it and where it was set, roughly. Uh, mm-hmm. And that it was well regarded for its stunt driving. But uh, we start introducing IRA members in a um, mid-90s film. Like, oh, no. No, no, no. Don't show <laughs> them sympathetically again. Please, not again. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. That's good. Yes. Um, so what was that? Oh, the the Long Good Friday we spoke about not that long ago, Scott. Like, just why did you introduce them in there? At least they weren't sympathetic, but mm. that, that was that was worrying. But it's even more so worrying when it's you know um, people who really don't know what they're talking about doing it. But it's like, yeah. I don't know. They're just the kind of villains here, but they probably could have been anybody. Yeah, um, and it, it kind of makes sense with the sort of geopolitics that are hinted at in this. It never really goes into it in any great depth. I mean, obviously you can. It's a bit more clear by the end of it where where all the kind of cards on the the table lie, but it doesn't feel the need to go into it in any great depth, which is great. Um, you can just you can read into that as much or as little as you care about, and just enjoy the film without getting into that. So it's cool. I think perhaps the only thing that concerned me about it wasn't actually the Irish section of like the the geopolitics there, because it took me like an hour to work out like to sort of backfill and work out what they'd been talking about. Mm-hmm. There's a scene earlier on when they're all getting to know each other and Stellan Skarsgård's there. And I think it's Robert De Niro, although it may have been seen being, 
makes a comment about like where you're from and stuff and they, they, something hasn't worked out quite that well for your lot. I'm like, well, the Norwegians. <laughs> you know, because, uh, here's the Norwegian man. Yes. And, uh, and no, that's not what they meant at all. Yes. Uh, apparently he was a Russian, which like that didn't click till like an hour later when yeah. he said he's a yeah. Russian. <laughs> it was not obvious, but it was meant to be, it seems. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, and that kind of fills that in a bit. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if not other complaints, I just, I, there's a couple of amusing things. That, um, one I want to mention in particular, like, Natasha McElhone's Irish accent is pretty good. Jonathan Price's is okay, right up until the point when he pronounces Deirdre in the British way, which is Deirdre. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's, oh, that, that just sounded so wrong. <laughs> it's like, she, Nash, Natasha McElhone is um, quite clearly getting it right earlier. It's like, by the way, my name is Deirdre, which is how it's pronounced in Ireland and it's generally how it's pronounced in the US. But, you know, in Britain, especially if everybody familiar with Coronation Street, no, it's Deirdre. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was this horrible bum note because he'd pronounced the name wrong. <laughs> how did somebody miss that? Yeah, odd given that there's apparently was a, a dialogue coach on set. I guess maybe just not on that day. <laughs> and it got I through. I guess so, yeah. Because that makes it really stood out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, presumably it's the same dialogue coach that missed um, Robert De Niro pronouncing Hereford as Hereford. Yeah. Which is fine for Robert De Niro if he doesn't know it, but given the whole point of that character is he's meant to know where Hereford is, it, does, it, it yeah. sticks out. <laughs> and, and that's not a, a, a particular issue with this film, it's just that kind of thing goes interest me in films. When a character who should know how something is pronounced doesn't pronounce it because the, the actor doesn't like... Is that a feeling of the actor? Or is that a director? Some directors are afraid to like say to an actor, you're saying it wrong because some actors are really precious and oh, don't want line reading something like you're but you've been paid to do a job, do it well. <laughs> yeah. Or or is it the kind of thing that just no one thought to check because whoever wrote it knew how it should be pronounced, but it can't be guaranteed that either Frank Neimer or anyone else that involved in it would have the, the kind of relevant local local knowledge to pick it up on it. Pick up on what is a fairly minor detail, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it, that's something that always sticks out to me too because isn't it somebody noticing that somebody's pronouncing this differently from somebody else? And again, if you don't know, okay, but like and you're in a film and, and I'm afraid I can't remember what it is now, but one that had always stuck in my head was in, there's something in Three Kings, the woman that Archie Gates, um, George Clooney's character is supposed to be um, taken around. She's a reporter for CNN or something. And she says this word, and she's clearly pronounced it wrong because the, the actress has read the script and doesn't know how to pronounce it. But her character would only have heard it. She would never have read it. She'd have heard it from somebody else. So it makes even less sense. And like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I have a point. Those things stick out to me. And like, how do they slip through? Like, I, I, I can see how they would slip through. I mean, I was going to say, you'd think maybe Sean Bean would have picked up on it. But even then, there's plenty of places in the UK that I do not know how to pronounce and would pronounce incorrectly, just because there's lots of weird things in English that just do not make any sense. Yes, yes and I, I, yeah, and I, I can I can completely imagine that might be the kind of thing that would just sail through. And uh, given yeah. that it's not like a a hugely critical um, detail, it just might have not had the focus on it. But yeah, um. actually, I did think about um, Sean Bjorn um, in that scene. <laughs> they like whether he did, but I did my explanation for actually at the time of watching it was that. Perhaps he was just kind of too starstruck by something like Robert De Niro didn't want to correct him or something. Yeah, take a set of stones to try and correct De Niro on acting performances, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Particularly in that same frame. Because 
mean, I assume it's not going to be filmed exactly at the same time. But as that scene continues, Jean Renault says to Robert De Niro, what a colour is the boathouse in Hereford? So he pronounced it right, he's French. <laughs> True. So, yeah. But yeah, none of that's important. It's just that those sort of things amuse me in film. But yeah, it's good to know that that really stands up for the most part. It does. It doesn't suffer too many 90s sins. Yes, can we say the same thing, though, about The Rock? Uh, well, I guess we'll see. Oh, yes, as Scott says, up next is Michael Bay's 1996 action film The Rock, starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery as, respectively, Stanley Goodspeed, a chemical weapons expert, and John Mason, an imprisoned former SAS operative and now unperson who must work together to stop a group of disgruntled former US Marines who have taken over Alcatraz Island from killing their hostages and a good part of the population of San Francisco with some most non-heinous non nerve gas. <laughs> Our unexpected and uncredited contributor here is Mr Quentin Tarantino, then hot in the heels of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Why he chose to do this is not something that seems to be widely known, but his association is enough for us. And, well, just be glad that we didn't go with our other Tarantino option, the Saturday Night Live vehicle... It's Pat, the movie. No, no, nor us. <laughs> Which the trailer suggests would make I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry look like Citizen Kane. <laughs> the Rock, the last of the Don Simpson-Jerry Bruckheimer collaborations and dedicated to Simpson's memory. Simpson having died before the film's release and whose autopsy was described at the time by the Los Angeles County Coroner as being the most toxic in California history. <laughs> Which I know is irrelevant, but is far too interesting not to mention. <laughs> Although I suppose I could have worked it into the film's Dangerous Chemicals plot. <laughs> um, attracted not just Tarantino to contribute to the script, but also Aaron Sorkin. And, at the other end of the unexpected writer spectrum, British writers Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet <laughs> brought aboard at Connery's request to rewrite his dialogue. That's Clement and Lafrenet, the noted sitcom writers. Mm. You know, whose high-octane action film bona fides include such things as porridge, <laughs> our feeder saying pets, and lovejoy? <laughs> now, I to be clear, por- all of these are great, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose at least porridge had the prison connection going for them. <laughs> as to other Tarantino's influence can be felt here, I'm not sure. I feel like there are hints of it in some dialogue-heavy scenes. And perhaps in lines like the one about winners and prom queens and the Alcatraz hostage and future Borat wife Lunel telling the tour guide, in no uncertain terms, about her gun. And he may have had a hand here and there. But a lot of the film, otherwise entertaining as it is, is clunky and uneven and rather like a Michael Bay film in most respects. To damn it with faint praise, it is easily Michael Bay's best film and his films, even at their worst, look and act like films a bar many others fail to clear. For instance, they're set up in payoff, like the establishing scene of Cage's Stanley Goodspeed, his proficiency in his chosen field, and his disdain for the use of atropine as an emergency measure. Undermined, alas, by the disguised bomb having a gas, mag- a gas mask beside it in the box, <laughs> or John C. McGinley's non-standard motion detector. Sadly, this latter, and especially the... Ed Harris's General Hummel explains his plan scene are most, most painfully of the as-you-know-Bob style mm-hmm. and surely unlikely to have come from the pen of Tarantino or Sorkin. 
though may well have been the work of yet another uncredited screenwriter, Jonathan Hensley, whose credits include Gone in 60 Seconds, Con Air and Armageddon. <laughs> and I'm also blaming him for the painful, laboured glass or plastic line towards the film's conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> this being Bay's best film owes much more to the cast than the writing, I feel. Connery and Harris are excellent and their mere presence elevates things. And Cage is, as usual, great value. Though here there are only a handful of sentences that he finishes very excitedly and loudly for some reason. <laughs> Naturally, this is a source of great disappointment. That said, some of the more dialogue-heavy scenes are amongst the most entertaining, particularly those between only Connery and Cage. Scenes notable for a complete lack of cars made entirely of fire, a sin, as we mentioned, that Ronan also <laughs> commits, camp comic relief characters, the fakest old lady crossing the street I think I've ever seen, <laughs> or any of the other stuff that makes this a Michael Bay film. Like the flame machine. You know, the flame machine. Hmm. A machine, <laughs> naturally still running in a closed-down prison, that spews flames out of the bottom in regular intervals. You see, if, you, if to- you close the flame machine down, it takes so long to start it back up again. <laughs> it's really inconvenient, so you've just got to leave that flame machine running 24-7, just in case you need any flames to burn people. Standard equipment in the US penal system, obviously. Yes, yes. The flame machine. The action scenes are at least passable, though, and car chases in San Francisco are reliably photogenic, and the crushing of the hippie-styled VW Beetle by the Hummer does tend to get a chuckle out of me, (laughs) even if it's about as subtle as that gigantic gas-guzzling vehicle itself. (laughs) And there are a few bits of flair dotted around, like the POV shot of Mason's knife as it flies towards the Marine's throat. While I suspect I'm done with the rock for the rest of my life, though I had already decided that once and here I am having watched it again, (laughs) it's easy enough to recommend as a solid 90s action film, with a better, though incredibly uneven script than you might expect. Really, the biggest disappointment is that instead of Raymond O'Connor as a park ranger, Phil Harvard wasn't drafted in to reprise his role as a Vicky from So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> a final acknowledgement to the entertaining but clearly bullshit IMDb trivia pages, which we know from personal experience to be, shall we say, susceptible, <laughs> and it's still there for anybody who knows what I'm referencing, um, that for this film provides such amazing and clearly true nuggets as the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for both the Connery and Cage roles. <laughs> As well as, apparently, Nick Cage's role in Face Off that would have seen him paired with Sly Stallone in the John Travolta <laughs> role. Please never clean this stuff up, INDB. I want to live in a world where these things could be true. <laughs> never hesitate. Who wore the long-haired look better? Sean Connery in Zardos or Sean Connery in The Rock? Um, I think I'd go with The Rock. Uh, <laughs> Yes, um, I was trepidatious again about returning to The Rock, which I've not done for a long time because there's been more than a number of occasions where uh, we look at a late 90s action film that we once loved and realised it was actually kind of not that great. I'm looking at you face off um, <laughs> and uh, with a lot of uh, shared uh, parentage a little bit as well. Uh, but no, uh, The Rock is just about as good as I remember it to be, which is to say uh, it is actually still pretty good. It's a, it's a reliably um, fun and entertaining action movie. Certainly not going to change anyone's life, but um, uh, as you say, comfortably Michael Bay's best. It's the one that actually feels like could actually have happened on planet Earth, uh, <laughs> which is, makes for a nice change. Yeah, it, it probably 
would not. I mean, I, I'm baffled as to how so many people could have got their heads around the script and it's still being like this because the script is bap. Um, it's, it's just, it's just not great. Um, there's like the very, very occasional good line, but not something that you would expect from it having gone through apparently most of Hollywood and most of Britain and, and been rewritten on the way and left with this um, because it's just not great in terms of most of the dialogue it's fine it kind of gets by just because well it's sean connery and it's nick cage they can get away with quite a lot that most other people wouldn't um and a lot of the clunkier lines are given to the kind of more i don't mean this entirely pejoratively but clunkier personalities um but i can it Yes, the stuff that Ed Harris and Michael Bean have to put out about are kind of like almost insultingly perfunctory. But yeah. the roles Ed that- Harris can do that because he's Ed Harris. He, he just brings kind of like the gravitas to the roles just by being Ed Harris. Yeah, they, they kind of get away with it. They, both him and uh, to an extent Bean in this um, have that kind of. I don't know, school principal kind of vibe to them that kind of makes them get away with that sort of thing, um, and so. Although they have got a lot of the worst lines, they can deliver the best as they possibly can, at least in terms of their character. It, it, it kind of just about makes it by. Um, if you'd given these to anyone else, it would, be, it would sound silly. I mean, you, can't, you certainly cannot imagine Nick Cage delivering any of <laughs> any of those characters' lines uh, without it sounding absolutely ludicrous. But um, thankfully, that is not the world in which we have to live in. And um, instead, we have this, which is pretty good. Still solid action joints all the way around. No real complaints in the way that it manages to balance the action beats with the kind of more little dollops of character development and <laughs> um, exposition and sort of banter between the leads. And yes, it, it basically all just works as well as it ever did. Uh, this holds up uh, very well in terms of an action film and I would happily recommend this today. It's still better than an awful lot of modernly released action films. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you have not seen this, I would definitely give this one a look up. It is easily uh, Bay's best and... Uh, well, I think at this point we can say uh, he's never going to better this because, well, <laughs> current experience would show otherwise. <laughs> yes, uh, all experience, frankly. I saw talk of, you're talking of modern action films too, particular ones, but say you know cars and things. Um, <laughs> I, I saw Fast and the Furious Nine last week, and I saw this yesterday. Guess which one I'd want to watch again? Scott? <laughs> I'm going to go to limb and say it might be The Rock. Which, curiously enough, does not have the rock in it. So, no, not as Fast and Furious 9, which is one of its many, many problems. Ah, we'll get to that's that in our next episode. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, a lot of the, the supporting cast really aren't great, although they're not given a awful lot to work with. Yeah. Um, I think if people like Tarantino and Aaron Sorkin were involved with the dialogue they've given it to like, the main cast, I mean, I could believe that either of those people had worked on some of the kind of repartee between Cage and Conway and then the tunnels underneath Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just, it's not just the the delivery and who's delivering it. It's, there's a kind of snap to there, to that dialogue that's not anywhere else in the film. Director Womack is just, it's just rubbish, isn't he? It's, yeah. Just kind of front two dialogue and it's it's typical of a Michael Bay film um, and it's full of lines. And this is very far from the only culprit and it's something I actually watching something just yesterday though I can't remember, unfortunately I can't remember now but 
using trains, uh, lines like, he's a trained killer. So, like a soldier then. Yes. (laughs) It's a very common phrase, he's a trained killer, but most of them are. Your country employs like a million of them. You you want to think about what that phrase means, you know? And Stanley Murphy was an untrained killer, because they're rarer. (laughs) He's Uh, (laughs) pro-am. So he goes, you know, on shooting speed with Bob Barker. Is that how that works? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the it's just the general trappings of this sort of film that let it down, let's say, like the whole, all the kind of, as you know, Bob stuff, which is yeah. just so tedious and anything. And it's poor Ed Harris is lumbered with it in this. Yeah. And Ed Harris deserves better than that. He always does. He always yes, does. Yes, he does. And again, he always, he's he's so dependable. He's just one of those people that kind of just, by being him, he adds gravitas to a scene that you know, generally doesn't deserve it. Yes. Um, uh, and that, I think that, that's so key to this being Michael Bay's best film, is it's got such three great leads. Yeah. And there's a lot of actors actually really like in Armageddon, but Armageddon's absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, this is considerably less nonsense, so that's better. And it doesn't once mention space dementia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, he's got San Francisco dementia. <laughs> Again, it's not for nothing that I'm suggesting the uncredited community here that was responsible for Armageddon is also responsible for perhaps the glass and plastic thing and some of the other worst things here. Yes. Um, I, al- I always forget about that space dementia line. And then it will always come sneak up on me and remind me that it's a thing that exists in an actual film that got made by someone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. It's the way, I mean, I can't. Like, Michael B. often has better access in his hairs because William Fickner delivers that line <laughs> so. Well, the best anybody possibly could have, way more than it's, it's, it's a real thing. <laughs> he, he's so serious about as, as if it's, My God, I'm he's got space dementia. I'm totally fine with moving off of the rock to bag on Armageddon, yeah. Um, it's, but it's like as if like that's an established thing that the audience would also understand. Oh yeah, of course, space dementia, that thing that notably exists. <laughs> yeah, so it's well known. Um, Star Trek's full of it, I know. <laughs> oh. Space dementia. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, so not for nothing that I blame him for lines. Um, I tend to forget about that, and I think I put it out of my head because it's so bad. You know, glass or plastic? Glass or plastic? And you think it's building up to some sort of really kind of clever line? It's like, do you want to be um, buried in a, or you have your remains in a glass jar or plastic bag? It's like, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I, I, doing? I, I had kind of forgotten about that line. I was assuming they were referring at some point to the little, maybe to the little glass beads yes, of VX or I, something I that was, was there. I'd, it was like, I'd forgotten nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope, it's just dumb. <laughs> it's so clumsy and awkward and just, it's, it's such a naff line. It's so, so naff. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Uh, yeah, but, um, Unfortunately, lines quite that stupid are are few and far between in the film. There, it's more of your kind of typical perfunctory. Yes, 
I am doing the bad thing, but it is for the good cause and because I am conflicted. No, you should do the good thing for the good reason, because it is the bad thing. Oh, this is the complicated conflict. Let's just shoot each other now. Okay. There we go. Moral conflict resolved, <laughs> at least as far as we need to care about in the context of this action film. Let's just have an action film for the remainder of the hour and ten minutes that's left of it. Fine. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on board. If there's any real problem in terms of um, why they've not mentioned it, it's that the film underuses Tony Todd, mm. which is a pity because Tony Todd can do a really good kind of... I don't think villain's quite the right word, but um, he's got such a, a really distinctive voice. Yeah. Um, he's got a good sneer uh, and he's very much a bit part in this. Yeah. Um, like, look, if you're going to cast Candyman in something, he better yeah. be he better be more significantly badass than he was in this. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a waste of of Tony Todd, unfortunately. The rest of it, though, I mean, it's just yeah, it it feels very nineties, and in other ways, it doesn't feel all that old in some of its action scenes. Yeah. Um, I think it's aged pretty well, actually. Um, yeah. It's still really solidly entertaining. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. talking a little bit off the top of my head, but th- there's not an awful lot of this that would be CG, I think. It, it all stands up, I think, mostly as practical stuff. Um, I guess maybe there's a lot of that, that, the very big thermite explosion at the end, which would be, uh, clearly they didn't actually bomb Alcatraz. So I suppose that one must have had a little bit of enhancement, but the rest of it, I think, is fairly practical base i don't think there's anything to think yeah, things like the um like the actual effects of the vx gas is really well done um that's pr- really gross and like yeah. ooh, I'm not that's sure it's great. accurate but yes it's it's, it's yeah. well done the good makeup there yeah and you don't see it much but you don't need to you you, just st- you set the film up at the beginning with mm-hmm. that it's like, oh right we're gonna know what's at stake there yes this is bad <laughs> and you don't see anything else till bokeem woodbine at the end and it's but that's that's all you need mm-hmm. and yeah, there's a couple of bits of ropey, either rear projection or green screen in it. Um, mm. Though sometimes those are just sometimes just pickups rather than it like it worked didn't work during shooting, so like maybe they're kind of constrained for time or yeah resources afterwards. So I, mean, I don't I like those pass. And there's the scene when the the F-18s are on their way to Alcatraz when they fly under the Golden Gate Bridge, like yeah. I kind of think that was real. It looked it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it wasn't, but I was pretty convinced by that. Mm. Um, whether they maybe just got permission um, to fly under it one day um, or something like that. And, uh, but yeah, that was quite convincing. And so there's not much you would need to change. Uh, you'd maybe have like better effects on that one time you do see the bomb go off. But kind of, I wonder with so much potential on CGI, um, it's disposal if you were to make it now, whether you would kind of go over the top. Yeah. And that would kind of ruin it because it's actually the the character stuff between like Stanley and um, Mason that's actually the most interesting stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, just some all right firefights and stuff and a couple of a bit silly, I guess. Um but kind of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom reminiscent um cart scenes and things. Yeah. So it's all it's maybe that's why it's what uh, one of Michael May's um, best films. But it's quite low key, at least you know relatively. Yes, by his standards. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there's a flame machine, of course. Let's not forget that. <laughs> what is the function of the flame machine? Flames. Flames. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, 
even like at the time, Michael Bay had acknowledged, you know, that there's a there's a plot hole here, and that like, why would that be running? I, I guess that's good. I mean, said like, you know, it's just kind of fun, and you know, it's not yeah. bothering me. I'm just amused by it. I would say the plot holes more is like, why does the flame machine exist? Hmm. <laughs> but yes, um, it allowed me to talk about it and be quite amused doing so. So, yeah, there's its utility. Yes, <laughs> it served its purpose well. Indeed. Right, uh, that's it for this episode. Unless you have anything further to add, Scott? No, no, I don't. Right, uh, then we will bid you adieu. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do, through, do so through the usual methods. Email podcast at fudsandfilm.com, Twitter, twitter.com slash fudsandfilm or at fudsandfilm, and facebook.com slash fudsandfilm. Until the next time then, uh, be excellent to each other. Goodbye. Ta-da!